raining out. Good morning. You made it. Hopefully you didn't get too soaked on the way in. Uh, welcome to Park Church. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm really glad to be able to speak with you again this morning. Uh, right now, we are kind of halfway through the middle of this series up here called Rooted. And if you've been around, you've heard this a number of times. If you're new, let me tell you what this series is all about. Whoever you are, wherever you've come from, whatever you believe or don't believe about God, we believe that God wants to grow in you faith. If you have it, he wants your faith to grow. If you don't have it, he wants to plant faith in you. He wants to plant his life in you. And he means for this faith to grow in you to be something like a tree uh, that grows up over time and it matures and it gets larger. And eventually uh, it bears fruit. Fruit that's good for you, but fruit that's actually good for the world around you. Uh, through your faith, God means to feed the world. In order, though, for us to have faith like this, uh, our faith needs to be planted. It needs to have deep roots that go into the ground, uh, that go into the ground of who Jesus is, so that uh, when we're feeling empty, we can get nutrients from Jesus. So that when the storms of life are hitting us, uh, when the wind is trying to knock us over, um, our roots will keep us firm and secure, so that we'll have strength uh, for droughts and strength for things like this. And so throughout this series, we're asking a bunch of big questions, questions where the answers have the potential either to do that, uh, to root and ground and firmly establish our faith, or they have the potential, these answers, to really cut the roots out, to really um, undermine our faith. Last week, we uh, talked about a question, and it was sort of a different one for us. We don't talk about this very much here at Park, but we asked the question, who is our enemy? And the enemy, we found, was not flesh and blood, but the enemy is actually like evil in person, who Jesus calls Satan. And the way that the enemy works is that he takes our circumstances, he takes our, he takes our sin, the things we've done wrong, he takes life, and he twists it up on us into a binding knot inside of us. Um, something like a prison, something like a fortress inside of us that we called strongholds last week. And these things, um, Satan uses these things to really steal life from us. And last Sunday we talked about this, and throughout the week people talked about this, and it is amazing how much life uh, the enemy has taken from us. Whether it's uh, weeks or months of jealousy, whether it's years of, um, uh, of anxiety, of things like that, whether it's decades, your entire life, of grief, of resentment, of anger that's boiled underneath the surface. Um, the enemy uses these things to take life from us. But we heard that Jesus has the power to break those strongholds, and he has the power to free you from those shackles that bind you and to raise you up to new life and to put you on your own two feet to walk freely and follow him. If you let him in, if you let him into your heart and do that. Jesus has that power. He has the power to give you life back. The enemy takes life, Jesus gives life. And so the question that we're following up with, it's a fitting question. Uh, it's how can I make the most of my life? How can I make the most of the life, God, that you have given me back? And this is, this is a question I think that we all ask. Whether you're someone of faith or not, whether you think the idea of God is crazy or not, um, we all ask this question in one way or another. How can I make the most of my life? How can my life have meaning? What's my purpose? What am I uh, here for? How is my life of significance? Because life without meaning, 
really isn't a life that any of us want to live. I recently read a study um, of, uh, that a, uh, sort of an informal study that a physician kind of ran, and he ran um, a nursing home. This was a typical old folks home, and if you've ever spent time in one of these places, you know they can be sort of sad, right? Um, lots of people with memory issues, lots of people with dementia, lots of people who are limited, who are bed-bound, who are wheelchair-bound, who are at the end stages of their diseases, uh, and the nursing home that he was the medical director of, he thought it was just particularly sad, and he wanted to do something about that. So what he did was he got approval from like the director of the home. Um, he got approval to bring in a bunch of animals, to bring in dogs, cats, um, rabbits, birds, this sort of thing. And he wanted the residents to take care of them as pets. And he did this, and he said that the results were absolutely astounding. People who they thought had no life in them started to come to life. People who couldn't really, or like they thought didn't really speak or didn't really move, um, they started getting up and coming to the nurse's station and saying, like, can I walk the dog today? Can it be my day to take care of the cat? Um, all of the birds were uh, uh, named and adopted by the people who um, live there. Uh, he said it was astounding. Uh, the reliance on medications that were used to control like agitation that reliance went down. Uh, life got better. Even the death rate, whatever that means, the death rate fell by 15%. I mean, 100% of them still die, but like <laughs> the death rate, <laughs> the death rate fell by 50%. And listen, listen to the reflections that he gives on this. He said, I believe that the difference in quality of life and death rates can be traced to the fundamental need the fundamental human need for a reason to live. He asked, why simply existing? Why merely being housed and fed and safe and alive? Why that seems empty and meaningless to us? What more is it that we all need in order for us to feel that life is worthwhile? The answer is that we seek a cause beyond ourselves. We need our life to mean something, to make the most of our lives. The interesting thing about this question um, really is how recent it is. If you were to ask this question 500 years ago, people would be like, what are you talking about? Because 500 years ago, there were two things that determined the meaning of life. God, across the board, God, but also like what you were born into. 500 years ago, if you were born a peasant farmer, your meaning in life was to be a peasant farmer. There wasn't much more to it. It was to grow food, it was to feed your family, it was to stay alive, it was to avoid diseases, um, and it was to teach your children how to become peasant farmers. There weren't choices, there weren't options. Fast forward 500 years, the world is quite different today than it was then. We had, we had a scientific revolution, we had modernism, the enlightenment, we had a bunch of world wars. And uh, over the last hundred years or so, philosophers and people like this have started saying, if we're just a collection of mass and atoms that are bouncing around following physical rules and all of that, well then maybe life is actually meaningless. Maybe there is no meaning to life. And the newest philosophers have started saying, yes, there is no meaning to life, but our job is to make our own meaning. And that's where we're at as a culture. That's our question of the day. I mean, it's our question today at Park Church, but that's our question as a society. Um, whether we're aware of it or not, we're constantly asking this question because we all want our lives to have a purpose, something to shoot for, um, 
something that has significance, to amount to something larger than ourselves, to make an impact on the world that lasts beyond just this moment. It's why we tend to throw ourselves into things like work, because in the absence of a meaning that's plopped on us, we have to choose something uh, to find meaning. And so we throw ourselves into work. And some of that's really good work. Um, we build companies where people can make money and live and survive. Uh, we build companies that make the world a better place. Um, we teach our kids and other people's kids to grow up. Uh, good things happen at work. It's also, though, uh, where work can get out of hand, where we can work ourselves sick, we can work ourselves to the bone, um, if that's where we find meaning. Um, it's why, for some people, we throw ourselves into our families, to raising our kids a certain way. We all want our kids to grow up and be better than we were, to be in a better place than we were. In some ways, we want our kids to succeed where we failed. In some ways, and for some people, we put pressure on those kids um, to be like a projection of ourselves that we couldn't be, and we put pressure on them, um, and we overwhelm them, and we put all sort of expectations, and we exasperate them. Because we think, if that kid is what we want him to be, or her to be, then we will have found our meaning. That's why we pour ourselves into the image that we create of ourselves, into our success, um, the size of our bank account, our social media profiles. It's why some of us pour ourselves into relationships, um, often good, meaningful relationships, often bad, destructive relationships. It's why for a lot of us, um, politics is such a thing because it gives us something to connect to outside of ourselves. It's why activism is such an important thing. We want to be connected with something bigger and grander than ourselves. For a lot of us, and maybe you, you find that in religion, in spirituality. Some of us, I know, um, we've tried to find meaning in those things, and we haven't, and so we're running from all of it. And we've run from all of those things that, that just make life seem meaningless because they're too hard. 500 years ago, this wouldn't have been a question that we ask. But given the, our current situation where we have the choice to make the most meaning out of our own lives, what happens, more often than not, is just great confusion. Because the world throws at us all kinds of things that are looking to grab us. Find meaning uh, in being the person who we want you to become. Find meaning in like the right car you drive. Advertisers do their thing based on this desire in us to find meaning. Um, we think we're gonna find meaning in the right phone, or being part of the right political party, or becoming the right person. And what happens is either we get overwhelmed by those choices, we choose the wrong thing, or we choose the wrong thing again and again, we get lost in those choices, we give up, we choose nothing, and we let the world out there, other factors, just choose for us what our meaning is, so that someday we have a midlife crisis. Or when we're on our deathbed, we look back at our lives and say, gosh, what was it all about? I had an experience a few months ago um, where I was with a patient at the hospital who was towards the end of his life. He was in his 80s. He was in the end stages of cancer. Um, he happened to be a physician, actually. He was a physician for something like 50 or 60 years in Middlesex County. He was one of these like general practitioners. He would go to your house, like you had him, your dad had him, and your grandfather had him. Um, I walked into his room one day and I said, hey, Mr. I don't remember his name, Mr. Smith. Um, hey, Mr. Smith, how are you doing today? He stopped me and he said, let me ask you a question. How do you know what you're doing is of any value? I was like, oof. <laughs> Let me go see the next patient in the next room. Either that's really offensive, 
Or he's asking a really deep question. He was asking a really deep question. He was one of the most thoughtful, probably the most thoughtful patient I'd ever met. He said, let me tell you what I mean. I look back on my life. I was a, phys- I was a good physician. For 50 years, I served the people who I cared for, and I served them well and faithfully. But now I know that I'm getting close to the end, and I look back on my life, and I can see I neglected my wife to do that work. My son, I don't have a relationship with him anymore, and I think it's because of what I poured myself into. And I look back on my life and say, I know I made a difference in the world, but did it have meaning? Did it have value? And this was, a, this was a physician who worked really hard and did really good things in the world all of his life. At the end of his life, he's asking these questions. For us, for most of us, we're kind of stuck in the middle of this. The choices the world throws at us can be quite dizzying. Um, all of the, the array of how we can make meaning of our lives. If we ask this question out there, the answers we'll get are dizzying. Sometimes, though, if we ask this question in here, in our hearts, the answer will be dizzying. The thing is, though, if you ask this question of Jesus, how can I make the most of my life? If you ask this question of Jesus, you will get an answer that's crystal clear. And that's absolutely distinct from, distinct from the world around. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, Jesus, but you're here, this is your chance to look in and say, what is life all about from that perspective? So to get at this, we're going to look at a short story from the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the four Gospels. Mark is the second one. It was probably the first one that was written. Um, Mark's a great writer. I love him. Uh, he writes the story into the very end of Jesus' life. Uh, it's really less a story about Jesus than it is about this nameless woman. It's about a woman who does something for Jesus that has lasting value. Um, the way that Mark writes, he's a very purposeful writer. He, he has a tendency to kind of sandwich uh, stories in between other things that seem kind of unrelated, but when you look at them together, you see a great contrast. And so before this story of this nameless woman who does this thing for Jesus, before the story, we see a picture of the religious leaders at the time. These are the people who were in power. These are the people who were in charge. Uh, They were plotting to have Jesus arrested and killed because Jesus wasn't doing what they wanted him. Jesus wasn't following his agenda. After the story, Uh, We see another story of Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' 12 followers, um, of Judas agreeing to sell Jesus out to these religious leaders to have him arrested and killed because because Judas had another agenda. And sandwiched in between these two stories is the story of this woman who doesn't even have a name. Um, So this is what Mark writes. He writes, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. Now, if this seems strange to you, it seems strange to me. I've never been to a party before where someone broke open a jar and poured ointment uh, on someone's head. I guess back then it was a little more common of a thing. Um, So here's some context. They're at the house of Simon the leper. Now, A leper is a leper. A leper is someone with a skin disease. Uh, And back in those days, religious people like Jesus did not go to houses of lepers, okay? This was a house that no no religious person would ever set foot in. Um, 
<clears throat> but this is what Jesus, this was, this was Jesus' wheelhouse. These were his people. The people who were sick, who were untouchable, who were no good, and who were good for nothing. That's where Jesus lived. That was his kind of people. And so if this woman is at the house of Simon the leper, which was not a great place to be at that time, uh, it means that she probably wasn't in a great place. It means that she didn't have it all together. But the thing that she did have is this, is this uh, alabaster jar of very costly ointment. Now, alabaster is a, it's kind of a white mineral. It was very expensive back then. I don't, I don't know what it's like today, but um, it was this very expensive white mineral that would only be used for certain things, uh, for very costly, for very valuable things. And in this jar was uh, an ointment of nard. Now, I don't know about you, I just love the word nard. <laughs> it sounds funny. It sounds like you meant to say something different, um, like lard or something, uh, or like you meant to say gnarly and you just got, got a little confused. I have this cartoon image in my head of like a surfer riding a wave of lard and he's like gnarly. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know why I went there, but um, that's what goes on. Uh, Nard was this kind of oily perfume. It was from Nepal, from India. So this stuff was literally from halfway around the world. This was expensive. And um, our translation doesn't give it. Other translations say this was pure nard. So as opposed to impure nard, I don't know. Uh, this was pure nard. It was worth a lot. And we see it wasn't just like an expensive bottle of perfume. This was very costly. In the next line, we'll see um, this, this thing could have been sold for over 300 denarii. Uh, that was about a year's wage for the average worker. So think about your salary for a year. Um, that's what this bottle of perfume was worth. And the average worker then was a man, right? A woman in that day couldn't make 300 denarii in a year. She probably couldn't make that in an entire lifetime. Uh, so this thing, this thing costs a lot for this woman. And this woman, she pops the top and she dumps it over Jesus. Actually, she didn't pop the top. There was no top on it. She had to break it open. This was like a sealed deal. She had to crack it open and pour it on Jesus. It was kind of a one-time thing. We don't know much about her, where she came from, whether she was rich, poor, religious, married, widowed, divorced. We don't know anything about her. We don't know whether she'd been following Jesus for a long time uh, or whether this was the first day she ever followed Jesus. We don't know anything about her. But what we do know is this. The thing that she had of great value, she used to serve Jesus. She had no problem doing it. The people, though, they did have a problem with it. Um, they start looking around at each other, and they're like, hey, get a load of this woman. Uh, she's using this jar to, like, she's wasting salary. What's going on here? They get angry about it. So they say, but some, uh, but some who were there said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they scolded her. The people who were there, um, they're there for Jesus. They had, they're there to impress Jesus. And they're thinking to themselves, we can get on Jesus' good side here. What does Jesus care about? He cares about poor people. So if we kind of yell at her for not caring about poor people, um, maybe we'll earn some brownie points with Jesus and whatnot. And so uh, they get... They get angry with her, and they scold her. The word that Mark uses there, it's actually like um, rebuked harshly. And this is a word that comes from the way that like, that like when horses get angry, like their nostrils flare and they get all annoyed and 
you know, all that kind of stuff, um, they're intimidating. I'm afraid of animals, uh, like little animals I'm afraid of. So if a big horse is in my face, like snorting, flaring its nostrils in anger, that's going to intimidate me quite a bit. Um, this woman, though, she wasn't afraid. She suffered the ridicule, the scorn, the wrath of the people watching um, just because she used this thing in service of Jesus. She knows what she's doing. She's serving Jesus the best way she knows how. But Jesus said, let me just say one other thing here. Um, in Matthew's version of this story, he has a little thing after but Jesus. He says, um, but Jesus, knowing this, said. Uh, Jesus knew that the heat was on this woman. Jesus could see that. Jesus also could see that they were probably right. This woman could have used this anointment and this ointment in a better way. Um, she could have sold it and given the money to the poor. When you do the calculations, this ointment could have fed 7,500 people one meal. So this was, this was kind of like a, you know, trade-off here. What's the return on investment on this thing? Um, Jesus is saying, you know, maybe, maybe she could have used a little bit on me and then sold the rest. Jesus knows this. Uh, and this is where Jesus is just so good and so gracious. Uh, he takes this woman's extravagant but ultimately imperfect act of service and he makes it something wonderful. Um, he takes her in, imperfection and makes it perfect. He says to her, he says to her, let her alone. Or he says to them, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. What she's done, no matter the cost to her personally, no matter the foolishness in the eyes of the world, no matter the ridicule and the wrath that she suffered, it was worth it for her to do this. It was a good service, he says. He continues, for you will always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. Now, this line can be taken as if, like, Jesus um, is undermining the plight of the poor, as if, like, you'll always have poor people, don't worry about them. That's not what he means. I think what he's saying there, this is actually a really sarcastic line from Jesus. I think he's saying to them, look, this woman, she did what she could with what she had in the best way that she knew, what are you schlubs doing at the table? If you guys care about poor people so much, why don't you get off your butts and do something about it? Don't get mad at this woman. That's what I think he's saying. He says, she has done what she could. Other people could do other things. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Jesus knows that right after this, he would have supper with his disciples that we celebrate over here. Uh, and he would be betrayed by Judas. And he would be arrested, and he would be beaten, and he would be put in prison. And then the next day, he would be crucified. And he would die on the cross, and he would be buried. And then that day, you needed to be um, anointed with spices and oil to be buried. And he takes what she's done and interprets that as anointing for his burial. And then he says, he says this, he says, truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. This simple act of giving what she had into the service of Jesus, Jesus makes it so that whenever and wherever his death is proclaimed throughout the world, what she has done will be told somehow in remembrance of her. Her service 
as humble and as imperfect as it was that day, is still impacting us today. Her service was written into a story so much larger, so much grander than anything she could have ever dreamed up or planned or imagined herself. Her, her, her service is written into the eternal story. Talk about making the most of your life. That's what she did with this service. And so when the question is asked, how can I make the most of my life? The answer that this nameless woman's story gives us couldn't be any clearer. Take what you have and serve Jesus with it. Take what you have and serve Jesus with it. This is how you make the most of your life. This is where you will find the greatest fulfillment, the greatest meaning. This is how you will make the most of it. The world will tell you all sorts of things. I have a, I have a shirt. It's not this one. I have a shirt on the tag. It tells me things about myself. Um, one of the shirts on the tag, it says, believe in yourself. I don't know if your clothes tell you how to make meaning in your life, but my clothes tell me to make meaning of my life. Um, the world will tell you all sorts of ways to make meaning of your life. Um, it will. Uh, seek adventure. That's what one of my shirts says. Um, blaze your path. Look inside yourself. Bank the money. Get the car. Work yourself to death. Give yourself to this cause, that lifestyle. Drink this cola. Uh, if you serve yourself, you will find meaning in your life. This is what the world tells us. And what Jesus says to that is nonsense. Take what you have and serve me. Now, you might be thinking, what, what do I have that's actually of value like this? What do I have that I can serve Jesus with? I don't have any alabaster jars on my shelf that I can use to serve Jesus. Yes, you do. I don't even need to know you to know that you have stuff of immense value that you can serve Jesus with even right now. They might be up in the shelf collecting dust behind your photo albums. Um, they might be tucked away somewhere where only you know about it. They might be in the box in the attic, but I promise you, you have them and they're up there. Here's one jar of great value that we all have. We all can use this, uh, and the world desperately needs this, and that is your friendship. Do you know how lonely people are out there? Do you know how many lonely people there are out there? Do you know how many lonely people there are in here? Not just people who walk in by themselves and don't have people around them all the time, but even people who have families, even people who are surrounded by quote-unquote friends. Do you know how just deep loneliness is? In a world where we are more connected than ever with cell phones and social media and all that, we are more connected than any time in the history of human civilization. We are also lonelier than ever. Your friendship, put it in service of Jesus. Think about someone who is struggling. Think about someone who you know is lonely, um, who's going through something, and you can say to yourself, gosh, if that person had someone to go through that with, their life would be totally different. Think about someone who needs to know Jesus, that they're actually not alone. Um, serve Jesus through getting a meal with that person. Take them to lunch. Invite them over for dinner. Go see Black Panther again with them, whatever the case may be. A simple act of friendship. Who knows what sort of impact that can make 
in a person's life. I mean, it can save lives. You want to make the most of your life? That's a good place to start. What other jar do we have? Um, there's this one. Our marriages, our families. A lot of times we are just trained to think that our marriages are for ourselves and our families are for ourselves. We're supposed to raise our kids and protect them and keep them safe. Our marriage is between me and my spouse, and that's kind of the way it is. Um, what if you turn that out inside out? What if you made it so that your marriage was a refuge for people who needed to see what a good marriage looked like? What if you made it so that your marriage was a refuge for people in your neighborhood um, who were going through a hard time, who were struggling with divorce, who were thinking about getting divorced, who have been divorced? What if your marriage became a refuge for single people who are struggling with what it's like to be single? What if your family was a refuge for, for the kids in your son's class who you know they have nothing going on at home that's going to help them? What if your home was known as a safe place, as a good place um, where love happened, where life happened, um, where you were known as, like, that's the house you go to if you need something good to happen in your life? You can use your marriage, your family, to serve Jesus in a way that you don't right now. Another jar of value that you have sitting on your shelf, maybe, and this one you have to be careful with. You only want to take this down when it's aged the right way. Remember last week we talked about these strongholds, the things that, uh, that take life from us. But the way that Jesus has the power to break those things, to give us our life back, to heal us, to restore us, um, to redeem us, to transform us. That, that experience, that's something you have sitting up on your shelf that at the right time you can take down and you could break that open and you can use that to bring light to someone who sees no light at the end of their tunnel. You can break that open and use that to give hope to someone who's hopeless, to give an ear to someone who, who, who they need someone who knows what it's like to, been, to be through what you've been through. You could take that down at the right time and use that um, to really stem the tide of the enemy taking life away and to actually turn it around and to give life. There are countless others. Some of you have a lot of money. You should use that differently. You should use it in service of Jesus. Some of you have a little bit of money. You should use that differently. You should use it in service of Jesus. Some of you have big houses and you use them greatly to serve Jesus. Some of you have little apartments. You can use those to serve Jesus. Some of you have gifts that we all wish we had. You can use those to serve Jesus. Some of you have gifts that are so much more humble and so much more unnoticed. You can use those to serve Jesus. You know, um, someone used a gift to serve me once and it was one of the most important things ever. When I was in high school, I had a youth group leader. His name was Gary. And Gary was a lot of things. I don't know what he was. Um, but the thing that he had that he used to serve Jesus in my life was he just gave me his time. Um, he took me out to do silly things. Uh, we went to McDonald's too much. Um, he taught me how to read the Bible. He taught me how to pray. He taught me how to think about life from a different perspective. Um, we all have time. We do. Some of us have less, some of us have more. We can choose to use it differently, but we all have it. You can choose to use your time to serve Jesus in an intentional way by investing in the life of someone who needs it. You want to make the most of your life, that's where it's at. That's where you're going to find it. That is of immeasurable value. So how do I make the most of my life? Take what you have and serve Jesus with it. It's, it's pretty simple. 
It is pretty simple. Um, the possibilities are endless. If this sounds like another thing to add to the list, it really isn't another thing because you're doing these things anyway, but you could do them differently to serve Jesus. It seems easy. So why don't we? I think, I think we don't for two reasons. Um, for pride and for fear. Pride is simple. We think we know better than Jesus, right? These people at this party, they thought they knew better. We could sell this, we could give it away. We know better than Jesus. We definitely know better than this woman. Um, how does that translate for us in our head today? You know, uh, Jesus, I hear you saying, take what you have and serve me with it. Um, but I have a better idea. What if I take what I have and I buy a bigger house? What if I take what I have and buy a cooler car? What if I take what I have and make my life just more comfortable and better? Um, that sounds like it's actually more meaningful for me. Or, Jesus, I know you're saying take what you have and serve me with it. Um, I have a better idea. What if I take what I have and serve me with it? What if I take what I have and use it to make myself a better person, to, to make myself more comfortable, to make myself um, happier, to make myself kind of more awesome? Because really, I think that's where I'm going to find the most meaning in my life. We think we know better than Jesus. And the second thing is just fear. We're afraid that if we take that jar off of our shelves and break it open and use it for Jesus, well, we've been holding on to it for so long. What would life be like if we didn't have it anymore? If we break that open and use it for Jesus, um, are we going to have enough for ourselves? Enough time, enough money, enough energy, enough heart? We're afraid that if we break it open, we're never going to be able to close it again. We're afraid if we break it open, we're not going to be able to control it. We're afraid that if we break it open, will it be good enough for Jesus? We're afraid if we break it open, will we suffer the same kind of ridicule and hostility from people around us? When it comes to pride and fear, um, how do we overcome these things? The answer is so simple, I almost feel embarrassed to say it. Um, you overcome by simply doing it, by simply obeying Jesus, by simply taking what you have and serving Jesus with it, regardless of pride and fear. Because when you do that, you will see two things. The first thing you'll see is that you didn't know better. You were wrong about that. Because um, when you actually take what you have and put it in the hands of Jesus to serve Jesus with, you will experience life and meaning and purpose and joy and happiness and fulfillment like you've never experienced before. And for those of us who have been able to give parts of our lives to serving Jesus like that, you know that from experience. The Apostle Paul is one of the founders of the church. He wrote letters everywhere. Um, towards the end of his life, he was in prison, actually, for talking about Jesus too much. He was in prison, and he wrote a letter to the church in Philippi, to the Philippians. And he's reflecting on his life. And he's saying, all that stuff I did before I knew Jesus, all the accomplishments, all that I made of myself, my life before Jesus, all the ways I tried to prove myself to the world, to the religious people, to whoever, to God, all that stuff I now count as just worthless. I count that now as without value compared to the surpassing value of knowing and serving Christ Jesus, my Lord. The only thing that finally mattered, that, that finally had meaning, was finishing the race, completing the course of the service that God had called him into. The first thing you'll see when you uh, take what you have and serve Jesus with it is it is absolutely 
worth it. The second thing you'll see is that you actually have nothing to fear. Because in the same way Jesus protected this woman, he will protect you too. Rather than not having enough, you will find that Jesus gives you exactly what you need to get through and to do better. Rather than not being good enough, you will find that Jesus takes your imperfect service and perfects it to have an eternal impact. Rather than caving to the insults and pressures and snorts, Jesus will use your service as a powerful witness in the world to bring people to himself. So this week, this month, whatever it is, my challenge is to take what you have and use it to serve Jesus. Just pick one thing if you can only pick one. But this week, this month, take what you have and use it to serve Jesus. And just do it. If you can't find the ability to do it, pray that God would help you do it. Pray that God would help you do it anyway. Um, pray that God would help you to have the humility to see, I'm going to trust what you're saying rather than trust what I'm saying. Pray that God would give you the courage to overcome the fear that you won't have enough or that you won't be good enough or whatever the case may be. Because if we were all to stop and to obey Jesus, if we were all to do this together, to take what we have and use it to serve him, can you imagine what he might do through this community, through people like us, a community of people whose faith is rooted uh, and grounded in Jesus, whose eyes are no longer turned inwards on ourselves, but are turned outwards towards the world who desperately needs to know this Savior, who are following Jesus into the world wherever he leads us. What people out there will experience um, is hope that they thought was impossible. They'll experience friendship in ways that they didn't even know how desperately they needed it. They'll experience healing when they didn't think healing was available. They'll experience love like they've never known. What is the faith of the people around you who don't know Jesus? What is their faith worth? Is it worth your jar of great value that you have sitting up on the shelf? Take what you have and serve Jesus with it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us what we need, for giving us gifts that we don't even know we have, for giving us the ability to serve you. We thank you, Lord, that you give our lives such great dignity by taking our service that we have to offer you and by perfecting it. Lord, for each of us, we pray, uh, we pray that you would inspire us to take what we have and use it to serve you. Give us ideas about how to do that that we haven't had before. It does take creativity. Um, it does take thought. It does take prayer. Help us along that path, Lord. God, we want to be a community, and we want to be individuals um, whose faith makes an impact in the world around us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do that, that you would create a movement in our hearts by the power of your Spirit to make that happen. Lord, for the things that we have that we can give to you to use in your service, take away our pride, take away our fear, help us to obey you. Um, Jesus, we thank you that your service to us is something that we are forever in awe of and our lives are forever changed by. And we pray, Lord, that you, that you would now build us up and strengthen and encourage us through your service. As we sing to you, Lord, uh, we pray that this, that this would be a prayer that's on our hearts and that's on our lips to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.